Welcome back to the Secret Shrimp Podcast. Um, this week we have a repeat guest on. I think our first guest ever we have on the podcast. So it's Aaron Harshig of Squat University. Probably one of the best pages on Instagram for injury prevention and rehab and prehab. So you wanted to uh, just let people know, spread a bit of awareness about his book. So we spent a little bit of time obviously at the start talking about that. But he's a very knowledgeable guy. In terms of injury rehab and prehab so it's well worth asking him a lot of these questions absolutely yeah so we had a lot of the big subjects uh icing shoes being too narrow a little bit about you kind of arches collapsing things along those lines not stopping training when you're injured but keep training but trying to fix the injury yeah how just rest isn't useful how it doesn't solve the problems yeah and so the first 10 minutes is actually just like he talks about what his new book is then afterwards we get into the kind of questions mm-hmm. one thing on the audio there's going to be a little bit of a clicking mm-hmm. just as the microphone was hitting off a zip um but that gets sorted after kind of 10 or 15 minutes i'd say it wasn't even no it was only for um, a probably few minutes. less yeah it wasn't um, that long. it was an isolated event because it almost gave me a seizure mm-hmm. uh but i barely noticed it so if i barely noticed it means it was noticeable but um <laughs> yeah it's good podcast i cannot wait to see his book i think it'd be good no it should be very good okay enjoy Uh, welcome back awesome. to the Extreme Podcast. You are actually our first ever guest, um, and we repeat guest. So, Aaron, you were the yeah. first person ever on the Extreme Podcast. Um, I was the first guest on yeah, the podcast. Yeah. You were actually. Oh no way! Technically, were you the first episode released? So you were the first episode recorded as well. So you were the first. We were. Yeah. Um, so that was brand new. A year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we've made a lot more episodes. It's crazy. Than... It's been that long. I know. Yeah. It's insane. It was, I think it was March. Was it March like twenty nineteen? Yeah, yeah, we were in. Uh, we just went into uh, Barry's gym. We just went yeah. into his office in, yeah. during that lunch break and just like got it done. Yeah. Shed, you know, <laughs> come a long way since then. So um, delighted yeah. to have you back on. Yeah. Uh, so you've um, so first and foremost, we want to talk about you have another book out. So rebuilding Milo. Do you want to tell people a little yes. bit about that? Why you wrote it? Kind of what what's in it and why should you know all of our listeners are active people. So what what would they benefit from getting this book? You know, because obviously a lot of injuries happen. Yeah. So just like, you know, you guys have experienced every single strength athlete, anyone who walks into the weight room, if your goal is to train heavy, lift big weights, or maybe just lift for aesthetic purposes, you're never always feeling 100% great. Maybe you will for a short period of time, but every single person at some point during the year experiences some sort of aches and pains. Little elbow flare up right now. My right knee's hurting a little bit. Maybe your low back, you tweak it just a little bit. Not big injuries, but small sort of aches and pains that we all experience when we're lifting big weights. And currently, there's not really great options for people in that situation. You either A, talk to your training partner and say, hey, you know, my right knee's sort of hurting me. What have you done in the past with that? Your right knee hurt you last year, right? Or you maybe seek out medical advice. Now, the medical advice often, is not great. It's usually will stop lifting so heavy, take this pain medication, and just like in a couple of weeks, come back to it maybe. Or they may say, all right, go see a physio, a physical therapist, and then you go see them. And then even then, they may not give you great advice. They tell you these very simple exercises. They don't understand lifting at all because they themselves don't train. So you're left with these poor solutions to your aches and pains. And your goal when you walk into the weight room is to lift big weights, especially as a competitive athlete, or aesthetically, you know, you're trying to get bigger legs, you know, a little bit more ripped and toned. So you have performance goals, and yet you're not finding good solutions to help you stay on track. 
So my goal with writing Rebuilding Milo was to empower every single person that would walk into the weight room to have sort of this baseline fundamental knowledge so that they can take the first steps to working on these injuries. It's not always, you know, just completely step aside and never squat again. It's not always, you know, just do these tiny little exercises. Sometimes it's understanding that you have the power to fix these small aches and pains, but you just need to know how. So the book sort of walks you through each and every part of the body that you might find an injury. So let's say one day you're working out and you know, you're doing some heavy deadlifts and you tweak your back a little bit, your back sort of flared up And the next day. You don't want to just keep on pushing through it because you know, if you keep on pushing through pain, it's just going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And you can try to lather on icy hot, pop some pain medication, anything like that. But eventually it's going to just keep on getting worse. So you turn to chapter one. And you go through each part of the section and it'll tell you, all right, here's some of the common issues and reasons why we develop back pain. Because there's no one size fits all. Everyone's a little bit different. And it tells you the different types of back pain that can occur. And then it tells you different tests that you can try. Try this test, try that test. What do you find? And it's based on this movement theory that the way in which you move creates it either makes pain worse, makes pain better. It allows you to understand and sort of self-diagnose the reason for your individual pain. And then based on those tests, the book gives you sort of writes out a specific plan that you can then follow to get you out of pain, build back capacity and allow you to get back to doing what you want to do in the gym. So it's sort of that, you know, catch all fix all for the strength athlete strength coach any single person that would walk into the weight room would benefit from this book and the idea is that you know let's say currently right now you're pain free well that's awesome continue training but chances are you've not been pain free your whole lifting career you've had injuries in the past so the goal is that this is a book that stays on your shelf and the next time that something happens you go you pull it out you turn to that chapter and it's right there. No more sort of guessing what you should do. No more just sort of asking your buddy or going to a doctor that doesn't understand lifting, going to a physio that doesn't understand lifting. This is coming from my practical experience in being an Olympic weightlifter for over a decade as a physical therapist, treating some of the best strength athletes in the world for over a decade, all combined into one simple product that speaks to people on their level. I'm not trying to talk down to people. So if you have just a high school level, you know, degree, you can understand what I'm trying to tell you in this book. You're not going to get confused. Um, and it, it's all written for you to get back to doing the things that you want to do being in the weight room. Yeah, it sounds great. I think that, that as like coaches now, we obviously get questions from people all the time about like, like it's knee pain or back pain or something and we're always looking for like resources of telling people where to go but at the end of the day we're always faced with the thing of like if it's anyway serious pain we're always saying just go seek medical attention or if it's mm -hmm. prolonged pain that lasts a certain amount of time go seek medical attention and then a lot of the time the medical attention comes back as being like oh don't lift weights for six weeks yeah and you've like well your off season is two and a half months long if you miss six weeks, you've missed almost all of your time you can possibly train for. Uh, and I think that like that's something when I left rugby uh, and not having access to good physios anymore. And you just go to some random physio who's not like affiliated to a team. And they're like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. just just stop bench pressing for two months. Yeah, and you're like, 
how is that in yeah. any way applicable? So that book, the book really does sound brilliant as a kind of point of reference. What kind of yeah? What kind of problems would you see with someone in that scenario? You know, if you let's say you get injured, you go to physio. What problems do you envision if someone's just told rest, but they don't do any proactive rehab or anything like that? Like, what what can end up happening? In so that what? Scenario? And that, that happens all the time is people are like, oh, you know, my, my back hurts while deadlifting. I'm just going to take two months off. So what happens is that when you remove the trigger for pain, yes, you will eventually feel better because you're not doing the thing that creates pain right now. So your body's slowly going to desensitize to the amount of pain. But what happens is that you didn't fix the underlying why. So there's always a reason we develop pain, especially in the weight room. It didn't just appear out of thin air. It's not all in your head. And the reason can often be traced to the way in which you are moving and or loading the barbell. So yes, it can be a pure load issue. Sometimes you could have immaculate form and just be maxing out way too often or going heavy way too often. But I will say that it's, that is the not as common form of developing injuries in the weight room because most athletes adhere to at least somewhat of a periodized training program that has fluctuations in training volume and intensity. They're not, most people are not going into the gym every day and lifting as heavy as they can with immaculate form. You haven't met some of the people we've met. (laughs) (laughs) Some people, yes, some people, yes. But that, and even that, that can only last for so long, right? Most of the time, the reason we develop injuries in the weight room is because of the way in which we are moving. There's a small movement flaw. Maybe it looks to the outside world like you have great technique, but to the inside, the coordination, the way in which your body is stabilizing or moving or pivoting, it's not 100% optimal. So what happens is all of a sudden you start overloading certain tissues within your body. And every single tissue within your body has a certain set biological tipping point at which it can handle load. In the more optimal your technique the higher capacity you can build those tissues. What happens is that if, if you invite sort of poor technique or maybe even just problematic technique into the picture, which is a large majority of athletes, we're not perfect, you can just reach that tipping point much sooner. And eventually, everyone's a little bit different. You sort of tip over that tipping point and eventually you start to feel some achiness and some pain. So let's say you take that two months off because you think it's just a load issue. Well, when you come back, you didn't address the underlying movement problem at all. So as you get back into it, you just increase risk of that pain coming back. So let me give you an example. Let's say we have an athlete who develops back pain while doing some cleans. And they say, oh, I'm just going to stop Olympic lifting for two months. I'm just going to do some like slow static stuff and they feel fine with it. Well, the next time they come back to deadlifting, if the reason was because they weren't necessarily bracing their core optimally in driving with their hips, sort of moving about the hip joint, right? A lot of times people don't necessarily get set very well in their start position. And what we find is that even though their back may look flat, we find that they're using their back too much. They're not lifting with their hips, they're lifting with their back. So the coordination problem is there. So the next time they start really doing a lot of lifting again, that same trigger is going to be there. And it may not be the exact same thing that may not be the back this time. Maybe it's the hip that goes this next time. But if we don't under, you know, sort of screen and evaluate and uncover the movement issue, the flaw that was there in the first place, we just increase the risk for something coming back. And that's why you hear of so many people saying, oh, I have a bad back. 
I have a bad knee. How long have you been dealing with it? Uh, about you know five years. It's been it's been acting up. Well, that's way too long because you haven't addressed the underlying why. You've only been addressing the symptoms with taking time off or just popping pain medication, watching TV, and it's like you know you see an Advil commercial or something like that. So it always comes down to a movement issue. And then the big thing is, well, how do you figure out what your movement issue is? You just have to do some proper screening and evaluation. There's different tools that you can use to uncover what that is for you. And once you find that, it makes you, it empowers you to understand and take control of the process because I want you to be able to get back and deadlift. I want you to be able to do cleans heavy, but we just have to make sure that we're doing it with the most optimal technique and getting you back there. So you're doing it with as good or acceptable technique as possible so that you can be pain-free for a long time. So Aaron, could you run us through like a kind of sample scenario uh, where if Gurf was reading your book and he has knee pain um, Mm -hmm. like every other weightlifter in the world basically, but he has knee pain on the right side. uh, What what are the kind of tests that Gurf would look to do to kind of see what his issue is being caused by? That's a good question. So the knee pain is one of the biggest chapters in the book. So what you would do is you would first look at areas outside of the knee. This is crazy concept for most people because they go, well, I have knee pain. Let me look at the knee. The knee is only a hinge between two other main joints, your ankle and your hip. Almost think of like a door hinge. And if you're opening and closing that door and the hinge is staying and opening and closing in a good aligned area, that hinge can open and close for the rest of your life and it's not going to wear out. What happens is that if you were to pull up on that doorknob or down on that doorknob and then start to open that door, all of a sudden that hinge is tracking just a little bit suboptimally. And eventually that hinge can wear out a little bit. So here's an example. We would start at the ankles or at the feet even too. So I have people get out of their shoes. And for a lot of weightlifters, this is a tough thing because you're always in weightlifting shoes. You're always in weightlifting shoes. So I get them out of their shoes and I have them just perform a basic body weight squat and a single leg squat. Now I'm not seeing if you can perform an ass to grass pistol. But I'm looking for whether or not you have good quality control on right and left side. And what I'm, what I'm looking for is foot stability. Is there any shifting side to side? Because often once you get out of your shoes, you can all of a sudden visualize some problems. All of a sudden I can see, tell you that your right ankle is a little bit wobbly and your foot is collapsing over just a little bit. That right toes turned out just a little bit more. And these small things are clues because they're going to clue us as to what next we're going to break down the body and figure out what's going on. So we would do different things like a five inch wall test for uh, ankle mobility where someone's up against the wall and they're looking at the amount of knee over toe translation. And I'm not looking to see if every person has amazing ankle mobility. But what I'm looking for is, is it symmetrical? Do I have just as much ankle mobility on the right side as I do my left? Sometimes people will develop right knee pain because they have limited ankle mobility on that side versus their left. And they may not ever recognize it because they're always squatting with weightlifting shoes on, which assists in ankle mobility. So what happens, let's say you're missing and even a small amount, maybe an inch or a couple centimeters different side to side. What that means is that every time you go down into a squat, your knee joint is taking on more load more quickly because of the natural compensation and the way the body is loaded, sort of natural biomechanics. If one joint is restricted, the other joint is going to take on more load. So every single squat, you're taking on just a little bit more load onto that knee joint. And eventually 
different tissues, like I said, they get overloaded and you sort of reach your tipping point. So that's one area that we would look at. We would also look at the hip joint in looking at mobility and stability. So you could do different tests and people have seen this on Squat University, the Faber test, where we're looking at side to side where that leg is dropping out. We're looking at hip internal rotation. And again, we're not looking at whether or not the person has the best mobility in the world, but is there a different side to side? So all these things are sort of things that I've shared across social media on different videos, but is sort of displayed very clearly as a step-by-step -step process in the book. And when you find, okay, my right side, you know, I uncovered the problem of that's, I have a hip internal rotation problem. I'm about 10 degrees tighter on that right side than the left. Here's what you do. You go and you uncover and you do the different exercises that I prescribe. Maybe it's a banded joint mobilization. Maybe it's an assisted hip airplane. And then we recheck, did it get better? Yes or no? If so, now we have a little bit better mobility. Then we start increasing load. So maybe we're doing a box squat or maybe a, a single leg squat off a small box. And we're slowly reapplying load in a pain-free manner now that we have symmetrical mobility. And then it's just slow, natural progression past that. Maybe it's, you know, let's say it was some knee pain that you only felt in the bottom of the squat. Well, I want you to train what you can train while you fix what you can fix. That doesn't mean you just stop squatting. I just don't want you to keep on squatting through pain. So in the short term, maybe that's let's, let's do a box squat with a five second eccentric. So you're just are controlling and working on stability and then coming back up. Let's do sets of 10 and just a pivot in your training to where you're pain free, but allowing yourself to focus on fixing that underlying movement issue can allow you to rebuild your body to where eventually a couple weeks later, let's take that box away. Let's see what a full depth squat feels like now with some lightweight. Okay. You're good. Now, Fully get back into it. So something like that can allow you to sort of rebuild your body, yeah. get back to doing what you want to do. You didn't take any time off. You just sort of pivoted your training. And now you're more equipped to know in the future, hey, my right knee's bugging me. Go check your internal rotation of your hip because last time that was your problem. Yeah. You know, on that that scenario, you talk a lot. And if you watch, a lot of people have watched your, you, you know, your Instagram or YouTube and you do a lot of like really kind of novel stability exercises. You know, you have stuff like your, like you talked about there, your bamboo squat or your overhead. If you could give maybe one or two stability exercises that people could do in training that are novel to them, that are low, you know, low absolute weight, but that would benefit most people that you've seen the most often just for our listeners. Just so, you know, a lot of people don't do enough of it. And usually people didn't end up enjoying it if it's novel and kind of challenging, you know, like the bamboo squat. But obviously that's more of a very specific specialty bar, but other stuff like that, you know? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that most people, what 99% of weightlifters, powerlifters, strength athletes should do that don't do is a single leg squat. And I'm not saying I'm not saying a pistol squat, but I'm saying like a single leg squat off a box. And you could just or stack weights up and you could do this before training or an assistant exercise after training. But so often as strength athletes, we are always on two legs. We are doing squats. We are doing cleans. We're doing snatches. We're doing jerks, deadlifts. We are never on just one leg only. So often we can develop these imbalances, in mobility and stability, not even realize it because we've never pushed our body into a position where it even becomes recognizable. So doing a single leg squat, and I would say for most people, let's say, uh, a stack of plates up to about maybe 12 inches, two feet, maybe, you know, you got five 20 kilo plates stacked on top of each other. 
that's a good height that I feel like most people should be able to do just a small single leg squat. And the cues are just the same as if you were to maybe do like a more of a hinged low bar back squat. So you're going to really get your hips engaged at the start, squat straight down. You're going to tap your foot to the ground as if tapping an egg, not breaking the egg shell, but just sort of tapping the ground and then coming back up. And the reason I like this more than like a Bulgarian split squat is because it really, really challenges your balance and stability. Like you said, with a Bulgarian split squat, you have your back foot as almost a kickstand to a bike. The single leg squat, you don't have any assistance. So you really have to focus on maintaining that stability through the entire lift or the entire movement. And you don't really need to weight this. It doesn't need to be something you have. Like you mentioned, you don't need a bamboo bar. You don't need a lot of accessories. Um, Just, you know, a couple plates that you're already training with, just stack them on up each other and two to three sets of 10 a couple times a week, I think can be an extremely helpful exercise at just maintaining your body. If you think about it, um, you know, we think about NASCAR or formula one, you know, these, these drivers are pushing their car pedal to the metal all the time in, in competition, but that's not the only thing they're doing to their car. They have an entire team of people that are there to maintain the function of that car. It's always brought into the garage and tuned up and made sure that it's running well. Well, the same thing is going for our bodies in that we can't just lift heavy every day and assume that we are maintaining the health of our and movement quality of our body. So we need to be able to do some things, take it into our garage and to maintain the quality on the way our, our body's functioning. And a single leg squat is a great check as well as it is an exercise, because if you're doing a single leg squat and you're like, man, my right side just feels off today. I can feel my knee wobbling around. My foot's a little unstable. What do you think's happening to your body when you're doing a double leg squat with 200 kilos on your back? Yeah. You know, those small imbalances side to side make big issues long-term. So going single leg allows you sometimes to expose those issues and work on them so that when you do get under heavy load double leg, you're moving from a more optimal platform of, of movement. If you were to give them... Um... Maybe an upper body exercise. So that's a great one. We use, um, you know, we do, we got that. We just point to your website a lot. So that, that single leg progression, we, you know, we end up to give that like 90% of our lifters. Yeah. Ever do it. Is there a similar upper body exercise that you often give people? Like, did you see like this really helps a lot with, you know, especially weightlifters who overhead or crossfitters? Yeah. I'm a big fan of uh, the Turkish kettlebell get up or any of the progressions or regressions from, um, you know, sometimes it's just like a kettlebell windmill. Um, can be helpful, just sort of that top down from the kneeling position. Um, but I think doing things again, single arm, again, if we think about being a strength athlete, what are we doing? Bench press, uh, push press jerks, snatches, always again, two hands on the bar. So if we're able to go single arm, it allows us to expose our body to a different demand for stability and mobility. So again, you could feel a difference in right versus left. And if you're feeling there's a difference in doing a full Turkish get up on your right side versus your left, what do you think your body is doing whenever you're doing a push press or a jerk in these small differences lead to big issues down the road. So solidifying them, exposing them and solidifying those issues whenever we're doing our assistant work can make sure that you're moving again from a more firm foundation. So I love, I love the full get up. I think that that's something that people, especially as an assistant exercise for any strength athlete. And you, again, you don't even need to do a lot of them do, you know, a very super slow, you know, maybe five reps total, but do singles on the right, on the left and work on up. I mean, I did one the other day. I think I got up to, 
40, 40 kilos, 45 kilos, almost a hundred pounds. Nice. Um, just, just one slow one though. It doesn't need to be, it That's needs a, to be heavy. It's pretty heavy though. Yeah. 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 It, it was pretty heavy, but in doing so it really is. I mean, if you think about it though, um, I'm not as strong as a lot of athletes that I treat, but if I can do a Turkish get up through a full range of motion and, and show better stability, it shows that that person that I'm training that has a lot more strength has of the potential to go that much further if they can clear up some of these weak links in stability. I don't yeah. And I it's just do. like, it's, I don't think I could yeah. do 40 kilos. I don't know. On a full Turkish get up? Yeah. I don't know if I could do that. Like, Aaron, we've had... It'd be a good challenge. Yeah. <laughs> like, we have people on the books at the moment who have 165 kilo jerks, like strong weightlifters, and they can't bottom yep. up kettlebell press 10 or 12 kilos. Mm -hmm. And it's... Yeah. It's like, we always talk about getting the low-hanging fruit, and this stuff is like the lowest of low-hanging fruit. Like, if your 12-year-old niece can do something better than you, or you're like somebody three weight classes below you or your physical therapist even though you're a weightlifter mm -hmm. you know like yeah. if there's glaring errors or glaring omissions in your game attack those first that's always yes yeah and i guess what it's going to do is it's 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 going to make things better for you yeah. in your main list yeah it's yeah. going to clear things up so for here here's a good example um i know you guys have heard me talk before about dr Stuart mcgill and a lot of the work that he does being one of the leading back mechanists in the entire world um so one of my friends uh jp price we're working through a lot of his back pain and i was doing some collaboration work with Stu, and jp went up uh to canada and got to do a full day with with Stu. and jp has squatted over a thousand pounds so he is a strong strong dude and in that evaluation, they did just a bottoms up kettlebell hold and walk. Stu is, I want to say he's in his early 70s right now. He could by almost double out bottoms up kettlebell hold what JP could do. Nice. And JP was like, oh, it's, you know, it's my, it's my grip. It's my, you know, my hands yeah, are a little sweaty. Yeah, yeah, he said, yeah, no, yeah. it's not. It's your stability. Yeah. from the core because the more stable your core is and the better that you have control from your core into your hand into everything else it sets the stage you know almost like someone priming the engine yeah. it's going to be it's it's ready to go so when you set that core correctly it allows you more distal performance your shoulders are going to be working as you want you're going to be able to have better control of them so something like that, a lot of people want the bottoms up kettlebell or a, Turk, a full Turkish get up for that matter. They think it's an upper body exercise. It's a lift. Once you have that bell in place, the rest of it is all sort of that midline of your body in your control. The bell is only just creating a greater demand on your stability. Your shoulder strength isn't a factor much anymore if you're in the right position. Because from there, it's just learning how to pivot and maintain the bell in place then like that that's that's so interesting you know that someone like for example Stuart McGill who is I know if you've ever seen him he's um just a good an in shape older man and compared to someone who's squatting a thousand pounds so imagine the effect that would yeah. have even if you even if it does improve your lifting but if it prevents you from getting injured that's a huge win there full stop like because if you can if you're injured you can't train um so on another scenario I think that's kind of 
it's an old school thought process, but icing was huge before. And I know you've talked a lot about not icing. Huge. Is there any scenarios yeah. where you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it? Like, is there ever a time where you're like, okay, icing makes sense right now, but I would, I would imagine most of the time you're kind of, you're not for icing. Do you want to give some, maybe talk a little bit about that? The only time I like ice is if I'm having a nice cold margarita. <laughs> <I'll say that. laughs> Here, here's, here's the deal with ice is that for the longest time we have been told that ice is helpful because it stops inflammation and it stops pain. Well, let's talk about those two things. Inflammation is not a bad thing, despite what people have been told. Inflammation is only the first step to the healing process. If you don't have inflammation, you don't have healing. So inflammation, let's say, let's say uh, there's a car accident, okay? And there's a bunch of cars, just metal, shards of metal, just all across the highway. Well, what happens is that you then have the cleanup crew comes in. You have the ambulance, the fire truck, everything comes to help clean up you know, the highway. Well, that process is inflammation, allowing the, the white blood cells to get to the injured area to clean up the injury. Well, if you block the inflammation process from occurring, it's like you're setting up roadblocks. So all of a sudden, the you know, all the white blood cells that are coming there, the macrophages to help clean up the problem, they're blocked and they can't get to the injured site. So if you have a bad back or a bad knee and you're icing it, you're actually delaying the healing process from occurring. So that's one thing. Step two is that pain is only sort of the sensation of that underlying tissue damage. Okay. So yes, ice blocks pain, but it's not fixing why that damage was there in the first place. So if you have a bad back, if you're just putting ice on it, you're just changing the sensation that you're feeling of that pain. You're not fixing. Well, it's every single time you bend over, you're actually creating a stress concentration, maybe at a specific level of your spine. And you're creating maybe, let's say you had a, a disc bulge. You're making that disc bulge a little bit worse and you're pinching on some of those nerves. Well, if you just, you know, sort of deaden that sensation, you don't realize, well, every time you go to bend over to pick up your shoe off the ground or laundry off the ground after that, it's just like a boxer climbing back in the ring and just getting punched in the face again. It's not going to get better. So I delays the healing process from occurring. There's actually a very interesting research article where they took, um, it was with a bunch of rats and mice, so they could actually do the specific type of injury uh, simulating like a crush injury to a number of different muscles. You can't do this on humans because it's unethical. <laughs> so basically they would create a, a crush injury in a number of different rats. And then they would ice that area or not ice that area in the area that had ice. And this is like a 20 minute application. So something that most people would do if their knee hurts, they put ice on it for like 10, 20 minutes. They actually found there was uh, the healing process was delayed by many days. There was increased scarring within the muscle um, and the muscle um, almost uh, shrunk inside. So there was atrophy, disuse atrophy because of the ice. So what do you do in place? Your back hurts. Well, A, first off, you find the positions that you can be in with less pain. So if it hurts to bend forward to pick things off the ground, what about kneeling? maintain your back in a neutral position. Is that better? If sitting hurts, well, what does standing feel like? Or maybe sitting with like a roll underneath your back 
to make sure that you're in a more neutral position. So you first want to find the pain-free positions to be in. And then for some people using like an electrical stimulation device, a neuromuscular device, then there's like PowerDot, Compex, Mark Pro. Those are great because what that does is actually creates like a pumping sensation where you're bringing good blood flow to the area, which is going to help bring in the healing properties to that injured site, clear out the bad stuff, the damaged tissue, basically spark the healing process. So that's my big take on ice is that most people think ice is there to delay the inflammation process and understand inflammation is a good thing. If you don't have inflammation, you don't have healing. You have to have inflammation to have repair and then regeneration of the injured tissue. There's no such thing as people like, well, I don't want too much inflammation. Well, what is too much inflammation? What, what does that mean? No, what you want to do is not continue pushing into the pain. So if walking hurts, well, let's put your foot up on the bed for right now and not continue yeah. you know, getting punched in the face. And then let's be proactive because when you ice, are you being proactive in fixing the injury? No, you're just laying down and, and sitting there. So let's get some good, you know, basically good movement. Good movement promotes good blood flow, brings good uh, cells into the damaged area and brings it away. Now, let's talk about the way in which a lot of people that are probably listening to this podcast think, and that's, you know, what about like icing after a workout, right? Well, what about um, like post-workout training? You just started a crazy set of, uh, of programming. There's a lot of high volume. You're doing sets of 10, you know. Does that help with soreness? Now, there's two ways to look at this. Research has shown that whenever people are doing like a post-workout ice, that some people do respond performance-wise the next day. So let's say you're a CrossFit athlete and you're doing an entire weekend of training, heavy training. Maybe it's a competition. Well, an ice bath may not be a horrible thing for you if you know, like as soon as you're done with your workout, you jump in the ice bath, 10 minutes, you feel more refreshed and you know that you respond better and you train better right afterwards. That's okay. But what happens is that for some people, they don't, they do that often and it becomes sort of a staple in their training in that every single day they do ice baths after what actually research shows in that case is that ice actually delays the healing process because every time you train, you're technically doing trauma to your muscles. So research has shown that those who use ice baths in that way actually slow the, the adaptation process to training. You may not get as much of the physical response to training. So you will get a blunted response to hypertrophy in strength training. So from a long-term perspective, it's probably not the most optimal for most people it is if we're really concerned about, you know, trying to get as much of a hypertrophy or a strength response. So if we're talking a, a healthy athlete, the use of ice baths or post-workout ice, it's sort of an, it depends if yeah. you're in the middle of the world's strongest man and you know that a post-training ice bath helps you feel more recovered so that you can then train again two hours later, I don't have a problem with it. But when something that is helpful in competition bleeds into your normal everyday training, most people via research that we have seen leads to just a less than optimal state for the recovery process in terms of being as great as possible for a hypertrophy or strength adaptation. 
So a lot of people always say like, well, Brian Shaw uses ice baths every single day. Okay. Well, that's one of the strongest men in the world. Uh, and I'm sure if there, he's a little bit less optimal in his hypertrophy recovery, yeah. he's going to be okay. You know, yeah, and that's, 200 we're, we're kilos. talking exactly. And again, we're talking directly after training. I'm not talking like if, if maybe you train in the morning and then you love to do, you know, an ice bath at nighttime, you know, it's, that's a little bit different in, in terms of the response to the body. So I'm not saying ice baths are the worst thing in the world. I'm just talking about as far as are we optimizing the recovery process? Yeah. And in most cases, I feel like people would benefit more so from an active recovery process of using things like a neuromuscular stimulation device, uh, maybe a, a light bike or just a good 10 minute walk, stick to the fundamentals good recovery as far as movement goes, uh, sufficient food, hydration, sleep, things like that are going to go much further than a, a five minute ice bath. Yeah, no, I think that's very useful for a lot of people to hear. Because I think w what people look for when they're taking like steps to limit inflammation is they just want to go and train more. So they ice their knees oh, yeah. so they can train again tomorrow or they take like non steroidal anti inflammatories like Nurofen plus or whatever the equivalent is. And then they want yep. to go and train the next day, you know, whereas like if you just got the positive benefits from that inflammation, you mightn't even have to train the next day or you might have to train Man, less in, in total. And, and I've been there. A lot of people, they, you know, they don't realize that that what I'm talking from, that's not just like sitting in this research tower and talking down like I have lived this yeah. in training for the um, and one specific one that always pops up and uh, I have many injury stories, but one of the most particular brought up the knee one, um, 2011 U S nationals. I was gearing up. That was my, my biggest national meet that I'd been to. I'd been doing a bunch of like national collegiate, which is just sort of like a lower tier national meet in the U S but, uh, U S nationals, senior nationals, 2011 up into that time, I started doing two a days, maybe three, four days a week. Cause so I was like, all right, this is the first big stage event I'm going to be on. I don't want to pass it up. I got to do more, right? More is always better. And all of a sudden, like my knee started really bugging me. It was hurting so bad that like, you know, every squat felt like someone was jabbing a knife in my knee. Yeah. So what do I do? All right. Well, I got to make sure I got my knee sleeves on, uh, icy hot, you know, before working out and then afterwards, okay, let's get some ice on it. Uh, let's do some stretching. Let's roll it out. And it just, it just continued to get worse. Or more so like, I mean, I would have ibuprofen or Advil in my, in my gym bag. I, all right for ibuprofen before working out. And all I was doing was trying to cover up the symptoms. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, and I tried to go get advice from people that I trusted at the time. And, you know, some of my teachers in physical therapy school, and they're just like, well, how much are you lifting? And I'm like, well, I'm pulling two days, three days a week. I'm training probably nine times total, you know? And they're like, well, just stop lifting so much. I'm like, well, that can't be the answer, right? That's the answer everyone gets. And it wasn't until probably, I mean, I was able to make it through the competition, but looking back now, if I would have had the advice of being like, all right, let's just break down your movement. What's going on. I'm sure there had to, you know, had to have been a, a restriction of mobility on one side versus the other. Um, you know, and we always say hindsight's 2020. There would have been something I, I could have uncovered that could have allowed me to, to still train, but make sure I wasn't just covering up the symptoms with ice and yeah. medications and, and just, just for the only thought of like, I can't stop training. I have to, you know, this, I have this competition, I have this goal. And I know so many athletes are like that. 
And I'm telling you, if you are icing your knees after training, you're going about it the wrong way. Your knees should feel good. If the next day you wake up from squatting and your hips hurt, you're not squatting well. I'm saying there's something wrong. And, I'm, and that's a big blow for a lot of people because the ego of lifting tells us, what are you talking about? I squat, I squat 250 kilos. You're going to tell me that I'm squatting wrong? And I'm telling you, yes, there's something wrong in your coordination. Sometimes it's very small. I was talking to Chris Duffin the other day. I'm sure you guys know him of Kabuki Strength. And we were talking about this idea of getting a back pump during deadlifts. And if I'm sure you guys saw the post. And basically I said, if you're getting a pump in your low back, like you did a bunch of curls or a bunch of squats, you get that pump in your legs. If you're getting that in your low back muscles after deadlifts or just heavy pulls, you're not lifting with 100% optimal technique. And I had a lot of power lifters and strength athletes comment. They're like, this is ridiculous. Your low back muscles are working when you, when you deadlift, you know, they're, of course they're going to feel pumped. And I'm saying, no, there's something that's incorrect in your bracing in coordination technique and that you're probably lifting with your back too much, not your hips. And Chris was, I was talking with him. And for those out there who don't know if Chris's accolades, he has deadlifted a thousand pounds for three reps. He has squatted a thousand pounds for three reps, weighing less than 300 pounds. Yeah. So this is a very strong man. And he told me in his experience, he would, he would have these back pumps sometimes in his pursuits of, of lifting really, really heavy weights, especially in deadlifts. And he found that it was because he wasn't bracing and breathing optimally and moving about his hips during the deadlift. And it wasn't until he started to fix that that he was then able to eliminate that back pump. And we're not just saying eliminate it for the reason of eliminating it. Whenever you're able to lift with the most optimal technique, you can lift with more volume yeah, and yeah. you can lift heavy more often. So if all of a sudden you, you're used to having one heavy day of deadlifts and then you know, you're just fried in your low back the next day, you got to take like a day or two off before you go heavy again. If you're lifting with more optimal technique, now all of a sudden you set yourself up on the stage to train heavy more often, which for a strength athlete means we can eventually get even stronger because we're able to continuously put a good stimulus on your body. So your performance potential goes through the roof. Yeah. And a lot of times that ego has to be checked because we look at the body and we go, and this is what Chris was saying. He goes from an outsider's perspective, man, I had great looking technique. Yeah. He goes, but from an insider's perspective, I could tell that I wasn't optimally bracing because I was feeling my low back when deadlifting. He, um, interesting, Christoph, he does all those lifts barefoot as well, doesn't he? He's wearing no shoes, yes. no socks, no deadlifts. Yes. He has some of the craziest looking feet. Yeah. It's <laughs> like right. spread out. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I've talked with Aaron about this a lot. Like uh, we'll get the night fours. Aaron will be like, how's the toe box? I'm like too small. Even Reebok legacy is too small. So we've talked yeah. about this a lot, you know, where yes. they're, it's we've um, the narrow toe box of a lot of waving shoes and that waving sh- shoes in general actually i suppose is too small and um yeah you know do you just i think we're you've got to go soon but that's kind of something i'd really like to talk about is that that how narrow toe box there and if you've ever seen those pictures of um this is great photo it, it was tribes in the amazon and a photographer took a picture of them they were standing on top of a glass pane and they took a photo on them and I'm not joking you, their feet look like hands. Yeah. Their yeah, feet yeah. were so fucking early and that's something similar to what Chris <laughs> looks like. So do you think yeah. do you think we're putting ourselves into a corner by putting ourselves into really narrow shoes like that long term? Do you think there's anything people could do just like is there anything they can do in the meantime or while they're looking for a better yeah. shoe? 
So I, I want everyone that's listening to this to go onto my YouTube afterwards and go to, it's a video I just called um, my favorite new shoes for lifting or something like that. And I was talking about Chris's shoe called the, the Ursus. Now it's, it's not a, it's not a weightlifting shoe. It's a flat sole shoe, but it's got a super wide toe box. And in it, what I show is that um, when you wear a narrow toe box shoe, it leads to a greater ease in your foot collapsing over. Because what happens is that when you're in a narrow toe box, your big toe is pinched in. So instead of splaying out, and if you were to look at a baby's foot uh, who has not you know, worn shoes yet, the toes are the widest part of the foot. What happens is that as we wear shoes, as we grow in these narrow toes, um, and the reason for that often is because of the fashion design in which a lot of shoes are made. So even though someone's like, oh, I got Nikes, those are made for athletes, they're still designed with the idea of being sort of this fashion footwear. Yeah. And this is from this is coming from like the early 1900s, later 1800s. They started designing these shoes very, very narrow. Um, what it does is it pulls your big toe in. And then all of a sudden, the, the structure of the foot changes, and it leads to a greater ability of that foot arch to just collapse over. And when that happens, the knee can start wobbling in a little bit because it's not sort of moving on top of a firm foundation. Now, if you look at any single weightlifting shoe, what you can do, just take your, take your, uh, the inside of the shoe, uh, the insole, take it out of the shoe. Almost every weightlifting shoe has a removable sole. And, and step on it, but make sure that your toes sort of stay within that. And what you'll notice is that every single weightlifting shoe has a narrow, your toes are basically pinched together. Yeah. So we see what, what are the biggest issues that we see in, in weightlifting? You said knee pain. Well, how many people have weightlifting shoes that are a narrow toe box? And what that leads is to just small inadequacies in the way in which we're controlling the knee. I'm not saying everyone has gigantic knee cave. But I'm saying it leads to a more difficult time stabilizing the knee joint when your toes are pinched in like that. So I think hopefully long term we'll be able to find a weightlifting shoe that has a wide toe box. And when when I say wide toe box, people are like, oh well, the Nikes they're wide. No, yeah. they're not. Take out take out the insole. They're, st they're still pinching your toes together. And I'm gonna make a video about this the next time I shoot some YouTube. Um, I'm actually going to take one of my old weightlifting shoes and cut them open oh, no. so people can see. Make sure it's not yeah. a rare pair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it'll be an old, it'll be a really old one. But um, I want people to really notice that that narrow toe box can be so detrimental to the to the function yeah. of the foot. Now, obviously, as weightlifters, what are you going to do? You can't weightlift barefoot. Yeah. So it is. It's one of those things that we do what we can. And know that a weightlifting shoe with a raised heel, A, it's, it's needed for competition, but it's going to allow you to be in the more most effective positions for the reception of the clean and the snatch. So we can't just go barefoot for Olympic weightlifting. But I think there's a lot of things we can still do to improve our function of our foot. And what that means is warming up barefoot as much as possible. So taking, and I know we've made some videos together about that, warm up with the barbell without shoes on. And just feel for your foot structure, grabbing the ground, maintaining an arch, getting used to spreading your toes out, you know, uh, outside of the gym, uh, make sure that you're in a wide toe box shoe. Um, I know like feel grounds is a great shoe. That's uh, based out of the UK. Um, they're, uh, you know, the barefoot Ursus from, um, from Kabuki, which is one of their offshoot things. Uh, they're a, an amazing shoe. 
But just a shoe that has a wide toe box so you can allow your toes to splay out naturally can, I think, help strengthen that foot up as much as possible so that when you do put your weightlifting shoes on as an Olympic weightlifter, you're just going to be a little bit more solidified in maintaining that foot structure. Like we, we've gone through basically, I think, all of the most popular shoes and like none of them had, from what we've none seen, inadequate. No. No, no, they don't even come close. Like they're all pretty equal, to be honest. Uh, Reebok Legacy 2 were probably the only ones that had maybe or Legacy 1s had a noticeable, but still you couldn't, if you were to splay your feet right now, like it's still not wide enough to and accommodate that. What's funny with yeah. with some of the newer ones, like the Reebok Legacy 1s, Le- Legacy 2s, the Nikes, the Ram 4s, they have the white, like, so on the sole of the shoe, they have those little wings that come out at the side to make it wider, mm-hmm. but the toe yes. box is still squeezed in. Yeah. So it's like, exactly. like more yeah. stable but you're not yes. using yourself to be more stable. Yeah, exactly. And uh, if you remember for the Nikes, I want to say, I mean, I got them with the ones, but yeah. do you remember they had like a, a competition insole? Yeah. 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 Like what, like, yeah, here's the yeah. deal. It, your foot is its own, yeah. like stable structure and you shouldn't need something else to prop your foot up more. And actually what we find is that people that use a stiff insole or use an orthotic, they actually develop weaker feet. They, they mold to the position and use that crutch. Their oh. foot weakens over time. Yeah. So if you're using a big insole, you're actually making your foot weaker long term. I remember I just had an injury when I was around 14 or 15. I got mm-hmm. something called metatarsalgia. It was like inflammation around with the metatarsals in my feet from jumping off walls and being an mm. idiot. Uh, <laughs> but it was like I went to one physical therapist and got a pair of orthotics and then I grew out of the orthotics and I just wasn't going to pay for another pair. So the physio I went to had me doing like foot strengthening exercises um, to the point where now my feet are like, if I put a 32 kilo kettlebell on the end of a towel, I can like roll up the towel and it's never caused me an issue since. But I don't think, I don't know anybody who does foot exercises. Uh, Well, that's the thing too, is I think if more people just went barefoot more often, yeah, they have strong feet. Yeah. You know, we don't even need to necessarily do foot exercises as much as it is just be in a good shoe or go barefoot more often. Because when we're in these narrow toe box shoes, your toe just is in a, such a horrible position. The entire foot structure is, is just off. Um, <clears throat> that's why so many people develop issues in their feet, like plantar fasciitis or like what you said. And it's, or, you know, they develop bunions on either side of their foot. And they, they point to, you know, just like with everything else, what do we want? We want a crutch. We want to fix it. So we, we get a, an insole or we get something, you know, that's going to help prop the foot up a little bit more. And we don't think, well, what is it that you're putting your feet in for eight hours during the day? Yeah. Even though people say that it's a good looking shoe or it's a athletic shoe, it's often a, you know, and this goes, this flies in the face of what a lot of podiatrists have talked about for a long time. It's because that's what they're taught. You know, when you, just like when you go to a doctor and they say, put some ice on it. Well, that's because that's what that doctor has been taught. They haven't looked at other things outside of the traditional medical model to understand, well, maybe that's not the most optimal. What's the most, and I mean, we should always be looking at what's the most natural thing. Our body naturally has a position, like you mentioned, people in the Amazon or other areas, you know, that don't have that influence from the, from the world today to be in these narrow toes, you know, their, their feet are just huge and they, their toes can spread out was because that that's how the foot should eventually evolve. Like that's what the foot looks like at birth. Why is it adapt and become so narrow? 
over time? And how often does that affect everything else up the rest of the chain? So one thing I've been doing actually is I squat barefoot now for every single lift. Now, overhead squats, I still put my weightlifting shoes on. But I mean, I, I squat barefoot, back squat and front squat now. Or I'm wearing like the barefoot Ursus type yeah, shoe. Yeah. Um, and it's for me, I've never felt more stable in my entire life. What I would always find that like, you know, you get over like 80, 85%. You know, sometimes I would feel like when I'm really pushing it, I would feel just a little slide in the knees, not a cave at all, but it was tough for me to maintain that perfect up and down knee position. And right now squatting barefoot for almost a year now, I've never felt more stable. My foot just is glued to the ground in an arch and it doesn't move at all. Almost like I'm in concrete blocks and my knees are opening up and down perfectly. I have not had an achy hip or knee, you know, anything lower body in over a year. And, and that like, was something that I almost every, every other year I would, something would feel off Yeah, my right quad, my left knee, right hip, something would be off a little bit. And I really attribute it to just like, I mean, how often do we lift as Olympic weightlifters in the gym five, six days a week? How much volume are we doing? And it's not that it's big movement flaws always. It's these small things that, you know, micro trauma because of small changes in coordination that build up over time and lead to these symptoms. Yeah. And did, did it feel better than when you went back to shoes or if you do a heavy single in your shoes or something like that, does it feel like it's improved that on top of your... Your barefoot I feel like I feel like I'm more aware. Yeah, I feel like I'm much more aware. So obviously, like I'm still doing my Olympic lifts in my shoes, but I can, I'm more much more aware that my feet are just pinched together in my Olympic shoes. Yeah. So it's 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 something I'm just like, damn it, why can't I find a good pair of like yeah. wide toe box Olympic weightlifting shoes? Seeker strength weightlifting I, shoes. <laughs> yeah, seriously, like I can feel when I go to my like if I'm doing a clean or a snatch, I can feel that sometimes like my foot's rolling around. But I can't necessarily stable it, you know, stabilize yeah. it down because I can feel like my my foot's just in a bad position. But I could had I had a wider toe box. Yeah, Aaron, I want to ask you one thing. Um, yeah, we have to tell everybody all the time to get better ankle mobility, and we we kind of have a rhetoric now that's well ingrained, and we shout it at everyone, and we email it back to everyone, and we DM it back to everyone, but quick three or four exercise thing that people should be doing every day to get better ankle mobility so the first thing is i love banded joint mobilizations i think those are easy ways just like ankle rocks in the bottom but the the big thing people got to understand is that it's not just the mobility exercises that you do but you have to use your mobility throughout your day and you have to have a strong foot because often people will do ankle mobility exercises and they see some short-term improvement and they're like, it just never sticks around. Like I'm always stiff the next day. Well, what are you doing? What are you wearing? You know, they're like, oh, I wear Nike or Adidas shoes all day long. And they probably have very weak feet. They're never out of their, they're never barefoot. And I ask them, well, how often are you sitting in a deep squat throughout your day? And they're like, I never do that. If you build a strong foot by doing a lot of like just barefoot squat, like, you know, you're sitting around your house at nighttime, get out of your shoes sit in a deep squat. I don't care if you need a goblet squat or something to offset your body weight, but strengthen your foot outside of your shoe. And a lot of times using that deep squat often throughout the day will allow that ankle mobility work that you're doing to actually take hold and become a part of your movement repertoire. Nice. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone can listen to that. I think it's the it's the biggest problem, mobility problem we see from people, um, especially in our weightlifting. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, For sure. In terms of and then in terms of stability, it's definitely overhead stability. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And like particularly in males who have restricted range of motion uh, in terms of their upper body and then shit stability when they go to a locked out position overhead. And you're just saying, like, how the fuck does this make any sense? How did you do enough work to get really instable in terms of like your front rack position? And then when you go to lock out a barbell overhead, you look like an eight year old girl. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it, it just it's funny yeah. where uh, where people accrue a huge amount of work like bench pressing or doing push ups and they tighten up something so much and then they yeah. do no work in a pike position or in a, a handstand hold position. I'm concerned yeah. I can't do a forty kilo uh, Turkish get up now. You'll have to go and do it after yeah, this. We'll yeah, man. To, yeah, we'll have to. <laughs> um just, just before you go, where can people get rebuilding Milo when it's not out yet, right? Is it it's still it's it's available for pre-order, yep. so it's available on Amazon all over the world. So don't go if if you live you know in Ireland or or the UK. I mean, don't go on Amazon.com because it'll say unavailable. Yeah. Go on Amazon. What is it? Amazon.co.uk. I think go on that side yep. or um, just any whatever country you're in that Amazon site. So I know like Amazon France has it. Amazon um, Canada has it. So just make sure that you're on that specific Amazon site or bookdepository.com will ship all over the world as well. Um, we'll so put a link sure down below. Um, so if you're listening to this wherever, it will be in the show notes. I appreciate it, guys. No problem. No, it's it's actually really good. So we'll, we'll just end the podcast here. <laughs>